What was the impact of Henry's personality on the government of England in the period up to 1529, uh, and why was Wolsey able to rise to power? Henry VIII is probably the most written-about monarch in English history. He was king for more than 37 years, and during that time, particularly in the period after 1529, he underwent many changes. Perhaps the most noticeable was his appearance, which went from the tall, attractive, muscular and well-proportioned to the fat, bloated, nearly blind man who had to be moved by a series of hoists. As his girth grew, his interests changed, and he went from the sportsman who loved jousting and hunting to the more sedentary pursuit of falconry. Henry was also highly cultured, a reasonable musician and theologian. However, perhaps the greatest and most noticeable change was in his temper. As he grew older, his temper grew worse, and he changed from family-loving man to a tyrant, who in the 1540s was willing to believe accusations against his wives and advisers. The most common view of Henry's early years is of his desire to demonstrate a complete break with the past and the rule of his father, Henry VII. Henry VII's last years had been characterised by meanness and severity, feared by many because of the harsh penalties he exacted from those who opposed him. Henry VIII's accession was greeted with joy, and contemporaries such as Thomas More commented on the change that accompanied Henry's accession. This day is the end of our slavery, the fount of our liberty, the end of sadness, and the beginning of joy. However, this view is somewhat exaggerated. It was a literary convention of the time to write about monarchs in glowing terms, and it is not unreasonable to assume that many were lured into exaggerating what they thought would be the consequences of a 17-year-old coming to the throne. To some extent, Henry VIII did want to demonstrate a break from the past and impress his subjects that he was a vigorous king. However, he did not seek an immediate break with the past, as he maintained many of his father's policies and methods of government, and retained some of his servants. Despite some evidence of continuity, Henry did make two very public declarations of change. First, he arrested and later executed Edmund Dudley and Sir Richard Empson, the two men who'd been responsible for implementing his father's harsh financial policies. The execution gained Henry some dubious popularity by removing two of Henry VII's most hated advisers. Second, Henry announced that Catherine of Aragon was to become his wife. Since the death of her husband, Henry's brother Arthur, Henry VII had refused to return her to Spain or marry her to Henry, as he had promised, and instead had used her in his diplomatic manoeuvrings of his latter years. As a result, she had been a virtual prisoner in England, but by marrying her, Henry would be seen as chivalrous by righting a wrong to a virtuous woman who had behaved with dignity during the period after Arthur's death. However, it was a politically worthwhile marriage and restored the Anglo-Spanish alliance that had stuttered in Henry VII's last years. The marriage would also provide Henry with the ally he needed for his major aim of building a reputation as a warrior king.
War was a kingly activity and also part of the concept of the chivalrous or valiant knight. It is therefore hardly surprising that Henry wanted to prove himself valiant by being successful in war. Henry had been brought up on two great stories. The first were the chivalrous tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. The second was his glorious predecessor Henry V and his victories in France, most notably at Agincourt, followed by the crowning of his son as King of France. This also meant that the title King of France was part of Henry's inheritance, and there was no better way to display his prowess as a warrior than mounting an expedition to claim what he believed was rightly his, the crown of France. This would also demonstrate a further break from his father, who had sought to avoid war during his reign. It was therefore the desire for war and glory that dominated the early years of Henry's government. However, such a goal was harder to achieve in reality. Not only was France much stronger than it had been in the early 15th century when Henry V had secured his victories, but Henry also faced difficulties at home. Although Henry desired war, his ministers were less supportive and were skilled at inaction when they disagreed with the young king's policies. In particular, Archbishop Warham and Bishop Fox, two of Henry VII's advisers, were determined to continue the policies of Henry VII's latter years and were able to trick Henry into renewing the truce with France in 1510 when Henry wanted to go to war. Despite the promotion of men such as Wolsey, who were loyal to the new king, there were also difficulties abroad. Although Henry's marriage to Catherine had secured a Spanish alliance, he soon discovered that Ferdinand of Aragon could break any agreement he had made if it was in his interests. Similarly, the Emperor Maximilian was just as unreliable, and both he and Ferdinand could be won over by bribes from the French. As a result, it was not until 1512 that Henry was able to fulfil his ambitions for war. Henry was able to launch his expedition to France in 1512 with the aim of taking Aquitaine, an area in the southwest of France that England had ruled over in the Middle Ages. Following the alliance with Ferdinand, an army was sent to northern Spain in preparation for a coordinated campaign. However, Ferdinand simply used the presence of English troops as a distraction to the French and took the opportunity to seize lands he desired in the Pyrenees. The English army was short of supplies and unwelcome among the locals and returned home at the end of the campaigning season, having achieved nothing but having cost a large amount of money. It was therefore hardly surprising that in 1513, Henry decided that the invasion would focus on the area around Calais, the area in France still controlled by England, and would therefore not be reliant upon the support of his allies, Ferdinand and Maximilian. However, the French realised that if they avoided a full battle, little damage could be inflicted by the English. As a result... Henry could achieve little, except a slow progress through part of northern France. He was able to take the unimportant town of Terouanne, which was then handed over to Maximilian, who burned it to the ground. However, Henry was able to lay siege to the city of Tournay, which surrendered to avoid the same fate as Terouanne. 
Although it was not economically important, it was an internationally known city, and gave Henry the glory he desired. Similarly, a skirmish with the French, known as the Battle of the Spurs, was turned into a great propaganda victory, bolstered by the capture of some French nobles. It appeared, at least in theory, that Henry had achieved his aims of glory and military conquest. His wife Catherine was quick to add that the victory hath been so great that I think none hath been seen before. However, most historians have been quick to play down the significance of the victory in comparison with the Battle of Flodden, which took place against the Scots while Henry was campaigning in France. They have argued that this battle was of far greater significance as the victory resulted in the removal of the Scottish threat for many years. Despite this, Henry had still been able to claim that he had lived up to the standards of valour and military leadership expected of a king, and that the emperor had served under him and yielded precedence, further increasing Henry's status both at home and abroad. However, the campaign had exhausted English finances, and therefore Henry was unable to return to France in 1514 to pursue his claim to the throne. Instead, he was forced into a peace policy. The French promised to pay the arrears of the French pension, negotiated by Henry VII. Henry was able to keep his conquests, and Henry's sister was to marry the 52-year-old Louis XII. When weighed against the cost of the campaign, the advantages were minimal, and Henry had also sacrificed his sister in the marriage market for little long-term benefit. War distinguished Henry from his father, as did the spending of money, not just on military matters, but on the court and on entertainment. Henry VII had developed a reputation as a miser, amassing a large surplus. Henry soon spent this, whether on clothes, earning the comment from a foreign observer that he was the best-dressed sovereign in Europe, or later on warfare. Henry VII had also become more withdrawn in his latter years, and was scarcely seen in public, while his son was the opposite. These two traits of lavish spending and being seen resulted in the establishment of a vibrant and lively court, which had the added benefit of appealing to the nobility, who had largely been ignored in the latter years of Henry VII. In addition, Henry VII created a large number of new members of the nobility. Under Henry, the traditional relationship was restored, and the nobility, either with warfare or court life, were kept entertained and therefore posed less of a challenge to the monarch's authority than they did at the end of Henry VII's reign. So why was Wolsey able to rise to power, and how powerful was he? It seems incredible that the son of an Ipswich butcher could rise to become the king's principal adviser and the second richest man in the country. His rise to preeminence angered the nobility. They resented his wealth, seen most clearly in his palace of Hampton Court, and his jobs and close relationship with Henry, which had traditionally been their preserve. What was it that allowed someone from such low birth to rise to the top? It is likely that it was a combination of factors, most notably luck, but also Wolsey's considerable talents and ability for hard work. 
There is no doubt that Wolsey was incredibly talented. After all, he had gained a degree from Oxford at fifteen. Wolsey was also quick to recognise opportunities for promotion and was a great flatterer. Something that would be of great benefit in his relationship with the king. He was also an extremely hard worker and this appealed to a king who was less interested in the day-to-day running of the kingdom and more interested in sport, fun and courtly life. It is often forgotten that Wolsey had already made his mark under Henry VII as his chaplain and later Dean of Lincoln, and this had led to him being sent on diplomatic missions for the old king. However, Wolsey first came to Henry VIII's notice as a member of Fox's entourage. But he realised that backing Fox's peace party would not endear him to a monarch who wanted war or a more aggressive or forward policy. Wolsey therefore gave the king the advice he wanted to hear. He was also aided by the fact that many of Henry VII's old advisers, such as Dudley, had either been removed or, like Warham and Fox, wanted political retirement. The opportunity for Wolsey to make his mark was the 1513 expedition to France. Wolsey took on the organisational tasks which many of the more experienced officials did not want because of the obvious difficulties in arranging such a venture. However, Wolsey overcame both the logistical obstacles in supplying the army and opposition from those in authority, whose rights he ignored so that the king's wishes were met. Complaints to the king from those he annoyed served only to reinforce his value to the king, who saw in Wolsey a man who could overcome obstacles and ensure his wishes were carried out. Although there's no clear date as to when Wolsey became Henry's chief adviser, it appears that by the middle of 1514 the king was referring nearly all matters of business to him. This influence was initially not reflected in any official position of power, but this soon followed, and by 1515 he had become Lord Chancellor and a Cardinal. This rise continued, and in 1518 he was appointed Papal Legate, and in 1524 this was confirmed for life. Historians have debated how much power Wolsey actually wielded. As Lord Chancellor he had direct control over the legal system, but although some have tried to portray him as a virtual dictator, it must not be forgotten that he could be overruled by the king. Although Wolsey was vindictive towards those who went behind his back to secure the king's support, some, such as George Cavendish, Wolsey's gentleman usher, have argued that, quote, All his endeavour was only to satisfy the king's mind, knowing well right that it was in the very vain and right course to bring him to high promotion. He took upon him to disburden the king of so weighty a charge and troublesome business, putting the king in comfort that he shall not need to spare any time of his pleasure for any business that should necessarily happen in the council, as long as he being there, having the king's authority and commandment, doubted not to see all things furnished and perfect. Unquote. There is little doubt that Wolsey wielded great influence. As the historian Stephen Gunn has argued, his authority as Henry's chief minister was so great that his apparent responsibility for all areas of government policy so sweeping that politicians and political commentators alike had either to be entirely for Wolsey or against him.
However, the idea that Wolsey directed policy is probably incorrect. As Eric Ives has suggested, Wolsey could effectively propose a policy, but he was always careful to ensure that Henry owned it. The relationship between king and minister was close, with John Guy arguing that it is true that Wolsey enjoyed exceptional favour and for a while his position was different. Between 1515 and 1525 it can be argued that Henry treated him more as a partner than a servant. Wolsey enjoyed a uniquely privileged access to the king. They walked arm in arm together and were intimate confidants to the exclusion of others. However, despite this, Wolsey was aware that his position and security depended upon pleasing the king. This was even more important given his humble background and the unpopularity of many of his policies with the nobility.